Hi folks, morning. Today we're continuing in Genesis, and this is a, a, a very challenging series. We're looking at some of the real foundations of what we understand as a Christian, how we view the world, how we view life, how we view God. Uh, and the foundations are found right back in the book of Genesis. So we've just been taking time just to unpack it. Some of it's pretty challenging, as today's I'm sure will be. Um, so let's pray. And let me just also say, uh, today there's going to be a number of things thrown out today. And I've put a couple of helpful links on Twitter. My link, Twitter account is here. Boom. Uh, if, if you go on that, there's a couple of links being posted out just after the service uh, to a couple of things I'm going to be mentioning. So that might be a help to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we turn to the Bible, I pray you'd reveal yourself, God. I pray you would teach us, and I pray you'd challenge us and transform us. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd enable me to speak, and you'd enable us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul White uh, wrote a collection of small stories with little fables in them, and they were were put together in a series entitled... Jungle Doctor stories. And one of the Jungle Doctor stories was about a hunter called Perembi. And Perembi was in search of a leopard because at the local market, leopard skin would get a lot more than any other animal you could get. So he was in the hunt for a leopard and he found a particular leopard in the jungle. He managed to kill the leopard and as he was about to leave, he noticed that the leopard had a little baby cub. The baby cub was very cute, so he decided, well, he would take the cub home for his kids because it was a cute little kitten leopard cub. He brought the cub home, and they uh, sold the leopard at the market. Um, the chief of the tribe was furious that Perembi had brought this leopard cub home. The chief said, little leopards become big leopards, and big leopards kill. You can see how this is going to go. But he decided, no, I wasn't going to listen to the advice of the tribe's leader. He instead was going to raise the leopard well. He was going to give it milk and treat it uh, and and, and not feed it anything with meat in it. Uh, Vegetarian leopard. And it was was going to grow up and it was going to be a happy leopard. And the children loved this leopard and it grew up. And lo and behold, one day the leopard had a cut and it licked the cut and it got a taste for blood. And its old nature rose up and it ate Perembi's children and killed Perembi. The chief of the tribe will eventually kill the leopard itself, but it just goes to show that little leopards become big leopards, and big leopards can kill. And that's a, an illustration, I think, that actually God uses in the verses we're going to be talking about today, in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 3 was the foundation of our understanding of the problem in the world. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world is the, the sin in every person. G.K. Testerton, in response to the question that was posed in the Times 100 years ago, the question was, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton replied to the editor and said, Dear sirs, I am, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And he got it right, because the problem isn't out there. It's not the Hitlers and the, and the Pol Pots and the great dictators who cause mass killings. It's also in us. There's a seed of horrendous potential in every single one of us called sin. It's called original sin. We believe that every human being is born sinners. And it started with our great ancestors, Adam and Eve, who turned against God at the beginning. And that rebellion has spread in the human race ever since. So Genesis 3 last week was looking at the root of sin. Say root. Genesis 4 this week, we're going to be looking at the fruit of sin. Say fruit. We see now how it goes with their offspring. So this is the birth of Cain and Abel. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, verses uh, 1 to 2. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant, and she gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Cain, first child ever born. First child ever born and also born with an inherent sin nature. And then there was also Abel, born with also a sin nature. Uh, in this episode we're going to be reading in this chapter, we're going to find the first death ever, which wasn't just a death, it was a murder. And it was caused by Cain. Verses 2 to 5. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, 
came, brought some of the fruits of the soil, and offered it to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering of fat portions and some of the firstborn of his, of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So why would God favor Cain and his offering and not favor Abel and his offering? There are two fundamental religions in this world. False religion, true religion. False religions found in Genesis chapter 3 and in Genesis chapter 4, as is true religion. Genesis chapter 3, false religion was Adam and Eve trying to cover their own sin with fig leaves, right? Ever since then, we've become aware of our shame, so we try and do things, we try and become better, we try and do all these moral, do-good things, or we, and we try and appease God by doing things and covering our own sin, and it's just merely fig leaves, it's just false religion. Uh, and then true religion in Genesis 3 is, is found in what God did. Instead of a covering that we had provided, fig leaves, God slew an animal took the skin of the animal, blood was shed because of sin, and that's the only way you can deal with sin. You can throw cash at physical debt to clear physical debt, but you can only have blood to cleanse moral debt, sin. And God caused the first death of an animal, and he skinned the animal, and he took the skins of the animal, and he clothed Adam and Eve, symbolizing very clearly that the only way you can deal with sin in life is through blood sacrifice. That's true religion. And then in Genesis chapter 4 here, we have false religion versus true religion. Again, we have Cain and Abel. Cain offered the, the works of his hands, the, the produce of the grounds. It was his hard graft. It was representing his efforts. And the very fact that Cain, as you read on in the next chapter, got really angry with God that he didn't accept that, just shows the mentality of a religious person. A religious person is doing a deal with God. And if God doesn't play to the religious person's tune, the religious person gets angry. Or I'll do these things, God, and then you will accept me. And the very fact that God didn't accept and the very fact that Cain got angry shows that it was false religion. And here we see Abel, however, offering a sacrifice of an animal which represented true religion. Just to be clear, false religion isn't Hinduism versus Christianity or Buddhism or Islam versus Christianity. False religion can be Christianity versus Christianity. Because there are many people within all the different systems who approach God on the basis of works. But there is only one way you can be saved on planet earth. And it's to approach God on the basis of faith in a work that God has done. So what, why did God favor Abel's sacrifice instead of Cain's? Here's the answer. It's found in Hebrews 11 verse 4. By faith, say by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as, what? He was commended as? As righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. So there's two things going on here. Abel did this offering by faith, and he was commended as righteous. What was Abel's faith in? Okay, there was two things that Abel had learned from his parents. There was two really significant things that happened in Genesis 3 that undoubtedly Adam and Eve would have passed on to their offspring, Cain and Abel. There was two great acts that God did to make a clear point. One act was that God took animal skins, Genesis 3.21. It says, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. Abel understood from that picture, Adam and Eve would have told them. They were events that were forever emblazoned on their minds, and they would have told their children, and Abel would have known the only way you can cover sin is by the shedding of blood. So his faith was that I cannot cover myself, I need another to die on my behalf. He understood that. And second thing that was emblazoned in his mind was a statement that God made to Satan himself, and Adam and Eve would have heard God say it. Genesis 3.15, God said to Satan, after the temptation and after the fall of man, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now we know that was a clear prediction of generations later, one would be born to a woman. Notice he didn't say, 
uh, I'll put everything between you and his offspring. And in a patriarchal society, it was typically the male line that they followed. It's an unusual thing to say between you and her offspring. Why her offspring? Because the only one ever born without a father and only a mother was the one who was born, Isaiah 7 says, front us. So Isaiah 7 says, and a virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, born to a virgin, is the one and the only one to conquer Satan in all human history, and it's in him you also can have victory. And see, Abel would have known these things. Abel would have known the garments, the animals slain, the bloodshed is the only covering. He also knew that God will, God will provide a solution for Satan's sin and death. God will intervene at some point, and he had faith that one day Satan was going to be devastated, that sin was going to be conquered. Abel responded in faith, and his offering was a reflection of that. It was more to do with what was going on inside of him than even the physical act of offering. Abel's sacrifice was a response to God's salvation. Cain's sacrifice was in order to obtain God's salvation. Big difference. And the Bible, right through the Bible, start to finish, there is a clear message running through, and the clear message is this that if you have faith in God, that makes you righteous. That's the clear message running right through the Bible. In the Old Testament, people had faith in a God who would save them and who would provide an answer. In the New Testament, we have faith in retrospect saying, God, thank you so much for Jesus Christ, the one born of the woman, the one who crushed Satan's heads, the one who's the covering for our sins, the one whose death and resurrection saves us. It's faith and faith alone that makes you righteous. It's faith in him that makes what he did yours. That's it. And that's only it. Love what Romans 3.22 says. Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Romans 5 verse 1 in the Amplified says, we are justified, that means acquitted, declared righteous, and given right standing with God through faith, through faith. John Patton, missionary to the, uh, to the South Sea Islands, um, a guy from Glasgow actually, went out there to be a missionary and was reaching the local tribes there. And when he was out there, he was, part of his role was to translate the Bible into language that they could understand. And as with any translation, you often have difficulties taking words that you're familiar with and communicating them in a way that the locals will be familiar with. And he had this difficulty, he wanted to communicate the concept of believing trusting, having faith. And he was thinking, he was really working hard on how do I communicate believing, trusting, having faith. And he was in his hut trying to think this through as he was translating the Bible. Just about then, uh, one of the natives who had become a believer in Christ ran into his hut, absolutely exhausted, and he flopped on the chair. And, uh, and he said to John Patton, it's so good to rest my whole weight on this chair. And John Patton instantly had the word. He translated the word faith as Faith is resting your whole weight on God. Faith is resting your whole weight on God. It's not hedging your bets. It's not thinking God and I'll do all these things. It's God only. It's faith alone in Christ alone that saves Why did God favor Abel's sacrifice more than Cain's? Because Abel's sacrifice was an expression of faith in God. But Cain's wasn't. And it says in Romans 14 verse 23 that everything that does not come from faith is sin. Even things that look religious. Let's go back to the verses. Uh, Verses 5 to 8. So Cain was very angry. And again, that's a sign that he was religious because you do what you, 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 you do a bar to you, you do these things and you expect God to do certain things back. And the very fact he was angry shows that that's how he was interacting. Cain was very angry and his faith was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you or master you. But you must rule over it. 
Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So what we're going to do now in the verses is we're going to look at the nature of sin. And then after that, we're going to look at the nature of what is it, how do we become free from sin? How do we become people who master sin rather than it master us? Because that's the battle in everyone's soul. How do you master sin rather than it mastering you? And that's what we'll come to. But first of all, the nature of sin. Here's, here's a number of things I just see in these verses. First of all, sin is hidden. Notice that God describes sin like a crouching animal. It says, verse 7, sin is crouching at your door. Crouching at your door. Was, in the Hebrew language, that word crouching was commonly used for tigers and leopards. Uh, I remember I, had, I used to have cats when I was growing up in Glasgow, and they would sit beside the fish pond in my garden, and they would crouch like this, washing the fish. And what we would do is we would kick the cat into the ponds. So it realized you don't eat our goldfish. We paid for them. Yeah. Uh, but you'd see them crouching. And, and what they're doing is they're trying to become hidden. Becoming hidden. That's what crouching does. It's so you don't see them. And that's what sin is. Sin is hidden. Now, what was going on here, it looked like an ordinary grudge in a man's life, right? You read the verses. He was a bit annoyed about a situation. It looked like an ordinary grudge in a man's life. It looked like grudge, envy, jealousy. But God was saying there is a predator behind that. There is a danger behind that sin. You see, the sin looked very hidden. It didn't look very dramatic. It was crouching in the corner, but it was a ferocious animal. It says in James 3.16. In fact, you can read this with me. One, two, three. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Whoa! I mean, that's shocking, right? Where jealousy and selfish ambition, I mean, you'd expect something a lot more sinister. You look at how the verse ends. Every evil thing exists there. You'd expect some more sinister things at the beginning, right? And yet, it says where jealousy, selfish ambition. Folks, honestly, you've got to guard your hearts in these areas because jealousy... It's devastating. You become jealous of someone else's blessing, just like Cain was of Abel's. It was a jealousy of blessing. It, was a je- it wasn't a je- I mean, you can have jealousy of someone else's life, someone else's wife, someone else's money, someone else's car, someone else's job, someone else's opportunities. But you could also become jealous of someone else's blessings. God, why is it you seem to answer their prayers, not mine? Why is it you provided for them and you haven't yet provided for me? Why? And the jealousy in itself, it looks ever so innocent, folks, but it's a predator wanting to approach it's a sin that is hidden, um, and it's devastating. The, the next thing we learn about sin is a sin look, is bigger than it looks. Again, crouching makes the animal look smaller than it does. You're looking at a small part, the head of the animal, and the rest of its body is hidden behind it. Sin is bigger than it looks. It says in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus speaking to the Jewish people, and then verses 27 and 28 onwards, he says, You've heard that it is said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So murders, you're going to be subject to judgment if you commit murder. But Jesus said also, sure, in the law of the land, you won't be arrested in this one, but in the law courts of heaven, it's just as much judgment for a person who's angry with someone in their heart. You have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, lustfully, he has already committed adultery in his heart, with her in his heart. Again, this, isn't, this doesn't have as devastating consequences, although it is the root of devastating consequences in a marriage. But the truth is, as far as God is concerned, the lust is the same as the act. Sin is bigger than it looks. Also, we find that sin grows. Cain's envy grew. It grew into something. It started somewhere and went somewhere. And that's the same with all sin. Hebrews 12, 15 says, look after each other so that no one falls short to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no one poisons... Out, sorry, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. A 
poisonous root of bitterness. Now, we've all seen that, right? We've all seen it when people end up with a root of bitterness in their soul, and before you realize it, those around them are also affected greatly by that. We've seen it in church life. You might have seen it in your family. You see it around you. Guard your heart from any seeds or roots of bitterness towards any other individuals, because if you allow them to be there, it won't just affect you. It grows. It doesn't just stay there. It grows. And this is exactly what's happening in Cain's life. In 2006, October, uh, some of you might remember the, the headlines. Uh, there was a, a terrible school killing in an Amish community. And what had happened was a, a milkman, the local milkman called Charles Roberts, uh, went with a gun into the Amish community school. And he, he'd delivered milk there for years, and he'd known the people for years, and he just turns and he started killing the children in the school. Killed 10 girls aged 6 to 14 years old. A devastating moment in the life of that community and for the world who looked on it in, in horror. And at the end of that killing spree, he turned the gun on himself. But before turning the gun on himself, he explained the reason for his anger was that he blamed God for the death of his infant daughter 10 years before. And he also was driven by memories of abuse in his childhood from 20 years prior. The truth is that sin, it grows as you allow things, bitternesses, unforgivenesses, to reside in your soul, it will lead to something. It might not lead to a mass killing, but all mass killings came from that. But it will lead to something in your life. That sin grows and it's devastating in its consequences. Philip Henry put it this way. He said, sins are like circles in water when a stone is thrown into it. One produces another. When anger was in Cain's heart, Philip Henry says, murder was not far off. You see, sin grows. Hatred becomes murder. Lust becomes adultery. Envy becomes robbery. You see it in the, many, you see it in the Bible. You see it with David. An evening of lusting after a woman leads to adultery with a woman called Bathsheba. Leads to the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. One sin led to the next. It was like ripples going out. And the truth is this. The first sin is always harder than the second the first unfaithfulness to your wife, the second one's much easier. The first time you steal, the second theft is easier. The first looking at porn, the second looking at porn is easier. The first time you tell a lie, the second lie follows that first lie to cover its traces and it's easier. You see, every time you sin, what happens is you stab your will and every time you stab your will, it loses its power to resist as much as it did the next time. The animal grows. Conscience becomes numb. And what was bad in your life becomes normal. Sin grows. Sin is powerful. The verse says that sin is crouching at your door and desires to have you. It's powerful. Sin desires to have you. I mean, that's talking about it mastering you. That's talking about it taking hold of your life and no one else might not know this is going on, but sin has you. Um, I heard a story of a mid, cold midwinter. There was a deep frost on it. It was up in Niagara Falls area. And upstream, a few sheep had died and fallen into the river and their carcasses were being swept downstream towards Niagara Falls. And there were eagles swooping overhead. And what the eagles were doing is they were flying down. They were laying the talons into the, into the carcasses of the sheep. They were, with their big beaks, they were ripping out some of the flesh. And they were eating as much flesh as they could just before the carcass would go over the edge of the falls. And at that point, they would jump off and soar and go and find another carcass to do the same with again. On one particular occasion, one eagle, seeing a carcass coming, it dives down and with its talons, it grabs into the... The, the sheep, and it, it, was, it was taking the meat from, just as it had done before, but this time, without realizing it, its talons had become frozen in the wool, the wet, damp wool of the sheep, and when it went to take off again, as it neared the edge of the Niagara Falls, it was stuck in the sheep, and before he knew it, the sheep, which it was devouring, ended up taking him down, and that's what sin does. Sin it starts small and grows big and its desire is to have you. 
And did you know that's not just for unbelievers, that's for believers. That's not just for people who say, oh, God means nothing to me. It actually is felt more by those who God means something to. It's felt more. It might not be more there, but it's felt more. You ever tried to stand still in a river? You know, when you're going with the flow, you don't even feel the current, right? But you stand still in the river. Whoa, there's a current. And you didn't even know the current was there until you tried to stand still. Temptation is stronger for those who are trying to resist than those who are just going with it. Paul says in Romans 7, and I think this was written as a believer. The apostle Paul, great church planner, wrote a chunk of the New Testament. Here's what he says about his inner battle with sin. He says in chapter 7, verse 19 onwards, the good I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil I don't want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul, the great apostle here, is saying, honestly, I'm battling with sin. There are things in my soul which desire things which I don't desire. I want to live God's way, and yet there's something within me that wants to go completely the opposite way, and sometimes I end up giving into it, he says. And he says, but one day, thanks God, I'm going to be free from this body, I'm going to get a resurrection body, and salvation doesn't just deal with the spirit and take us to heaven, it deals with the whole deal, spirit, soul, body, you're completely restored, that's the promise. But in the meantime, as believers in this flesh, we will have battles going on waging in our soul. Sin is so powerful, it desires to have you. Next thing about sin is sin reacts against grace. Now, we've just seen that in Cain and Abel, haven't we? God showed favor to Abel. Cain reacted against that. And sin always reacts against grace. Listen to this, Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Sin always reacts against grace. Here the religious people were reacting against the grace that Jesus was showing to unsaved folks. People who just didn't know God. People who were wandering away. Jesus Christ was extending God's love and that's exactly what he does. And by the way, if you're wandering away from God today, you need to understand, you need to repent, but God so loves you. He's on your case. He will not let go. He is for you and he's longing for you to come back to him. But sadly, religious people so often look in judgment. On the back of those verses we read, Jesus, in response to the Pharisees, went on and told the story of the prodigal son. You know the story. It's about the son who rebelled against the father. He went away to a distant land, lived crazy life, and then eventually realized the error of his ways and came back to the father. The father embraced him and accepted him and restored him back into his full rightful position as a son. And the older son was sitting in judgment saying, this is terrible. I've been doing all these good things. Hear the religion come out again? Hear false religion? Doing things to earn acceptance? The elder son said, I've been doing all these things and you didn't show that kind of acceptance to me. And it's exactly what happens. Sin and religiousness reacts against grace. In fact, as I was thinking about this, it suddenly dawned on me last night and I made a quick note of it so I'd share this with you. It's interesting, Matthew 26, verse seven, it says, a woman came to him. This is two days before the crucifixion. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he's reclining at the table. By the way, that would have been so fragrant that two days later, as Jesus was on the cross, the smell in his nostrils would have still been the alabaster oil, which represented a woman's response to grace. It represented deep, heartfelt worship to grace. Just as Abel responded to grace in his offering. It was faith. So also this woman responded in faith towards the grace that she saw in Jesus Christ and nothing was too expensive in that worship moment. And then what does it say then? Verse 14 and 15. One called Judas Iscariot went to chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? The woman expressed faith in grace that she saw. And what was the reaction well, sin in Judas caused it to be the greatest betrayal of all time as he betrayed Christ. Also, sin distorts grace. In Jude chapter 1, verse 4 and 11, it refers to Cain. 
It says, ungodly people who pervert the way of our God into a license, sorry, pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, the only sovereign and Lord. Woe to them, for they have taken the way of Cain. They've taken the way of Cain. Ah, we have an insight into the way of Cain here. What's the way of Cain? Well, look at it. It says they use the grace of God as a license for immorality. What does that mean? It means that, well, God will accept me, so I'm just going to go do something anyway, and God's grace is so big, he'll forgive me anyway. So we suddenly realized that there was something else going on in Cain's soul. Cain wasn't just a legalist who offered like a religious person in order to get God to bless him. I'll obey the laws and God will accept me. That's how he started. But Cain swung to the opposite extreme. And this might be an extreme you're living in. Where Cain understood the grace of God to such an extent that he went on to murder. And he figured, well, God will accept me anyway. I've seen how gracious God, God didn't kill my parents, Adam and Eve. I'm just going to go sin anyway. And what, sit, what grace does, the grace of God is so remarkable, so robust, it cleanses us from sin and forgives us. But if you ever use that as an excuse to just, all right, I'll just go sin anyway because God will forgive me, then it's, it's obvious you totally ain't got the grace of God. You're spitting in the face of Jesus. This is totally distortion. This is what sin does. It's interesting, years after Cain, his great-great-great-grandson, a man called Lamech, same chapter, Genesis 4, 24, he killed a man, and then he, this is what Lamech said after, after killing a man. He said, if God avenged, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. He saw, well, God didn't take Cain out. In fact, God protected Cain after killing someone, so God will surely protect. And they were using grace as an excuse for sin. Sin distorts grace. And then verses, let's, let's move on to verses 9 and 10. Now we come to the solution to sin. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. How do you master the animal within? Okay, there's three things I see here. First of all, confession. See, when, when God came to Cain here, he asked the question, where's your brother? Now, the question was like the question God had asked Adam and Eve in the chapter four. He wasn't asking Adam, where are you? Because he didn't know where Adam was. And he wasn't asking Cain, where's your brother? Because he didn't full well know that he had murdered his brother. God knows everything. God knew that Cain had murdered Abel. So why the question? Well, what God was hoping that Cain would do in that moment was that he would own his sin and that he would acknowledge his sin and he would say, God, I've just done something. It's the most horrendous thing. But instead of that, what's Cain's answer? Look at it. It's, um, am I my brother's keeper? And what does that tell you? What does that tell you about Cain's attitude in that moment? It tells me that he is totally unrepentant. So the solution is this. Sin is crouching and it wants to have you and I. It wants to take you out. And what's the solution to it? First solution, acknowledge you've got it. Acknowledge and confess sin. Realize where you're at and acknowledge your sin. (coughs) Acknowledge your sin to God. But listen, if sin is mastering you, it's also good to acknowledge it to others. For example, I, I, I sometimes wonder, well, why didn't Cain talk to Adam? I mean, Adam and Eve, his parents, they had blown it. Surely they would understand the depth and the darkness of sin. Listen, mom and dad, I'm battling with these anger thoughts in my soul. But there was no confession to, made to God or to anyone else. And you want out of, your, out of this control of sin in your life? C- confess to God and at times confess to others. In fact, it says, James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There are times where, I, I don't believe in the Catholic premise that we've got to confess to a human being in order to get forgiven. You get forgiven by confessing to God. The Bible is crystal clear on that, really clear on that. But I do believe there is a time and a place for you to talk to another person, and that's where accountability can kick in, and you can mutually help each other come free. I remember 
years ago, some of you have heard me tell this story, we, had, we owned a 4x4, four four, and I loved that car. And I loved it because, you know, it's a kind of man's car. And, it, you know, Angie really didn't like me going off-road, so... I behaved myself, and we went on family runs. And we, but there was one moment we were on, uh, up at Loch Tay, and we were going up a single-track road. Sorry, we were coming down a single-track road, and there's another car coming up it. And uh, as we kind of faced off each other, uh, I realized that the only option was to go off-road. Uh, because he had passed his passing place, and I'd passed mine. So it's okay. So I flicked it into four-wheel drive and locked all the... That's great, all these buttons. Lock that and lock this and zoom. So, and then went off-road, and then, but what I hadn't realized, in among the long grass was a really deep ditch. So as I went over, the, the wheels on this side sank into the ditch. So I, we're cars like this, and Angie's down there looking at me thinking, what are you doing? And the kids, their heads have flipped to the other side of their car seats. They're, they were fast asleep in the back, oblivious to all that was going on. And uh, I'm realizing I'm in trouble. But it's okay, I was in a 4x4. Four four. So I, what I did was I just pressed another button, and then I turned the wheels to it like that, and I put my foot down and we tried to get out, but this time it just went even further down like this to the point where it's on its side and it's lying against the embankment. And these wheels are spinning in the air. <laughs> and and I, you know, I was just trying to get out of the situation. Eventually I had to eat humble pie, get out of the car, and I had to go all the way down to where we were staying and there was someone there with a Land Rover and they came with a rope and they tied the rope to the back of my car he tied it to the back of his car. He drove up the hill. I put the car into reverse, and I reversed back, and he pulled me up, and he got, helped me get out. But, and you know, but some of you are like that in sin. You're, you're in this situation, and you're thinking, I oh, don't worry, I'm in a four-by-four. Four four. I'm a man. I can deal with this. And actually, you just end up deeper and deeper and deeper because your secrets are there. But there comes a moment where you actually got to go public and say, help. And you get someone else to come alongside you. And help you out the situation. So whoever is trying to have mastery over you, you might actually be okay and God is with you and God forgives you and you're walking with him and you're trusting him and every so often it raises its ugly head but you just walk with God and it's okay. But there are some of you who it is starting to master you and my advice to you is whatever that issue is, is go public. Not like from here but talk to someone. Get someone alongside you. Have someone who can help you. you know, every Thursday, we've got a thing in the church called the pastoral surgery. If you need a one-to-one chat with one of the pastoral team, a male or female, then if you're a woman, make an appointment with a woman. If you're a guy, have an appointment with a guy. Meet up and let's talk. And the accountability will help. Also, we've got, there's Dennis and Sharon on the balcony there. These guys run Celebrate Recovery. What night's it on, guys? Thursday? Thursdays, down in Leith. What time? Can't hear you. Seven o'clock, Thursdays down in Leith. Uh, Celebrate Recovery. It's a 12-step recovery program. It's not just for drug addicts and alcoholics, although it is for drug addicts and alcoholics. It's also for people struggling with anger, eating disorders, different things that are trying to grip hold of your soul. Also, a course we'd recommend. Here's a, here's a link. It's a website called Setting Captives Free. It runs courses for a whole range of issues, whether it be uh, overeating, pornography, smoking, drinking, whatever is the thing that's trying to grip hold of your soul, these offer, this court, this, we often recommend this to people in the church because it offers f- a free 60-day Bible study that's done accountably with someone else. And it helps you go through Bible truth that will help you come free. So whatever your issue is, work through these things. Expose them. Number two. So first of all is confession and acknowledgement of your situation. Number two is repentance. There's, there's, a, there's a town apparently in, in Labrador, Canada called Wabush. And Wabush is a, was, was a completely isolated town in the middle of nowhere until eventually someone created a, a new road leading to the town. And uh, the thing about that new road was uh, there was only literally one way into the town and one way out. So after you arrived in the town, the only way to get out of the town was to turn about and go back down the same road you went into the town with. And it's exactly the same with walking with God. Today, there's only one way you get on with God, and it's called repentance. It's when you choose to recognize that I've been going my way, and I changed my mind right now. I'm now going to go God's way. That's what repentance is. Acts 20 verse 21 says, Paul spoke to the believers, and he said, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And here's my final point, and I want you to hear this point like you've never heard it before. You might hear this point and think, I know this point, you've talked about this lots. But I'm going to say it, and I believe this is the key in this. Number three, you have to have faith in Jesus. You have to have faith in Jesus. And this is the biggest key to overcoming the animal that wants to master you. Cable, sorry, Cable, Abel's offering was an expression of trust. Cain's offering was an expression of self-salvation. Law. Listen to what Romans 6.14 says. You help me read it. One, two, three. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let me read you a story that H.A. Ironside, a Canadian church leader, tells from about a century ago. He says, it's a story of a young Indian lad who had never been off the uh, Navajo Reserve until Dr. Ironside brought him to Oakland. He'd become a Christian only two years before. And when he came to Oakland, he was taken to a group of young Christians, people who, one Sunday night, and they were discussing about law and grace. He listened to them as they argued backwards and forwards about the various aspects. And then the leader called on him to say a few words. And he said in broken English, me has been listening to you talk about law and grace. And the longer me listen, the more me think you don't know anything about law or grace. He said, let me tell you what I think. When Mr. Ironside and I go to Oakland with him. He asked me to go to Oakland with him. We get in a big train down in the reservation. I've never been in a train before. And we had to ride. It was a long ride. Ride all day long. And finally, we came to Barstow out in the desert. Me, very tired. So we get off the train to walk on the platform and stretch my legs. And while we walk around the platform, we see a sign that say, do not spit here. Me look at the sign and me think, what a strange sign white man put up. Do not spit here. And then he said, me look at the sign before I know what's happening, me spit. I look around the platform and I see many people spit here. I think to myself, how strange. Signs say, do not spit here. But many people spit and I spit. And then he said, we got back in the train again and we went a long way all the way to Oakland's. And some friends met us at the train and they took us to a beautiful home. I've never been in such a home before. Mr. Ironside take me to show me the soft chair and excuse himself for a while. I was left in the room and all around me was everything was so nice and soft. The thick rug on the floor, the beautiful walls painted with lovely colors and pictures hanging on the wall. Everything's so nice. I walk around the room and I think to myself, uh, about, th- I think to myself about something. I look around the room and all over the wall and I try to find the sign that says, do not spit here. But I cannot find the sign and I think to myself, too bad this lovely room is, going to be, room is going to be ruined by people spitting on the floor. But then I look in the floor and I see nobody has been spitting here. And then it comes to me. When the law say do not spit here, it makes me want to spit. And I spit. And many people spit. But when I come into grace and everything's lovely and nice, I do not want to spit. I do not need the law to say do not spit. It's interesting when Jesus caught the woman caught in adultery and the, the woman was brought before him and he said he who is without sin cast the first stone and one after the other were all convicted of their sin and they left and then it says in John eight ten, the woman caught in adultery to the woman who caught in adultery he said has no one condemned you no one sir she said neither do I condemn you Jesus declares now go and leave your life of sin You see, he showed unconditional grace to a lady which empowered her to go and leave her life of sin. It's not law and trying to prove anything to God that lets you live free from sin. It's not that, okay, I'll tighten up my bootstraps and try harder. It's total faith in a savior, in his power in your life, not just a theoretical savior from 2,000 years ago, but a risen savior who's alive today. It's total faith in that savior that becomes the core of your ability to walk with him. Abel is actually a picture of Jesus. Abel, the first ever shepherd in history, picture of the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Abel, rejected by his brethren. Jesus Christ, rejected by his brothers. Abel, 
presented a sacrifice to God that was acceptable. And Jesus Christ offers a sacrifice to God that is totally acceptable. It says in the verse 10, it says, your brother's, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Abel's shed blood was crying out from the ground. And what was it crying out? Justice. You see, every time blood is shed in the Bible, it always cries out, justice. And the cry of Abel's blood was justice against the crime that's been committed. But then it says in Hebrews 12, 24, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for justice. Jesus Christ's blood cries out, justice. What does that mean? It means that every time If you're a believer in Jesus, every time you sin, his blood, Jesus' blood, cries out justice. And here's the justice. He died for all the sins you have or ever will commit. He died to take away every sin you've committed. Justice was done on the cross. So the shout of Jesus' blood saying justice isn't a condemnatory cry against you. It's the the cry that declares that justice for your sin was dealt with 2,000 years ago. Justice for your sin was dealt with 2,000 years ago. Justice for your sin was dealt with 2,000 years ago. He died in our place so we could have a resurrection life. He was punished so that we would not be punished. He was condemned so that you would never be condemned. He was separated from the Father so that we could be forever connected with the Father. He took our place so that we can take his place. He took our sin so that we can be declared the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This is the good news. The verses end in verse 11 to 16. It says, God said to Cain, now you're under a curse and driven from the grounds, which will open its mouth, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the grounds, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the lands and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. No one knows what that was. Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one would be, <clears throat> who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You see, he wasn't repentant. Repentant people are more concerned about the sin they've committed than the punishment for their sin. Cain here was more concerned about the punishment for the sin than he was over the sin he'd committed. But nevertheless, what we see here is this, is that God is merciful to repentant people. But here we find God is also merciful to the millions of people around us every day who are not repenting. And that blows me away. God interacted tenderly with Cain. He interacted tenderly with Cain even before he committed the murder. He asked him, what's going on in your soul, Cain? He was wanting Cain to talk it through and to get to the bottom of it so that he was like a counselor God was. He wasn't coming with a stick. He was like a counselor, helping him out of the situation, helping to see the root issue, but he didn't see it. And now he comes to Cain and he interacts tenderly with Cain and puts a mark on Cain. Derek Kidner, the, the Bible commentator, said this, God's concern for justice for the innocent blood is matched only with one other thing, his concern and care for the sinner. Now, God cannot bring Cain into his presence, but he does protect him. And God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. And the Cains in your life will cry out for you to accept me and accept what I do. But the truth is, I know I'm accepted, but I don't even accept what I do. We hate sin, we love the sinner. And the truth is, if God cared that much for Cain, how much does he care for you? How much does he care for your life, for my life? And if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, 
He doesn't just interact with you as someone he cares for. He interacts with you as a son and a daughter that is totally declared righteous before him for all eternity. Let's pray. So Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. God, we, we say thank you for the, <clears throat> these really foundational chapters in the Bible that give us an understanding of some of the, the mega themes that actually affect our lives on a day-by-day basis. They feature in the news. They're the ruin of our families. And God, we thank you that you are the God who saves. You're the God who redeems. You're the God who changes everything. Okay, in his presence, the band are going to just play. Why don't you just take a moment to respond? Confess, repent, and put your faith in Jesus. Come and respond to this grace with faith. Come to this God of grace. Let him be the one who transforms you from the inside out. So just where you are, just make your response to God. Maybe there's some people here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus. I'm going to take a moment just for you just now. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, you've never decided to trust him to be your savior, then there really is no salvation anywhere else. There's no hope in self-salvation. There's no one good enough to do enough good to get them out of their predicament. Only Jesus' substitutionary death for you That's the only hope you have. So why not put your faith in him today? That's you and you're saying, Peter, yes. I want to right now acknowledge my sin, repent for my sin and put my faith in Jesus. Then this is your moment. So just respond to him just now. If that's you and you're saying, that's me, Peter, I want to do that. Then just pray this prayer quietly after me. Just pray, dear Lord God, thank you so much for your love for me. Today, I put my trust in you, Jesus. I turn from sin. I acknowledge my sin. And I put my trust in Jesus, the one who died for my sin and rose again. Today, I acknowledge that you're the only hope of salvation. And I trust in you from this day forward. Take first place in my life. Be Lord of my life. Thank you.